Good morning, everyone. I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you all for joining us once again for the 11th hour lecture series. I'm Rachel Yoder, and I'm a writer uh, who lives and works and writes and curates in Iowa City. And you are in for it today. You came to the right day of 11th hour. Um, we're going to have a really fun time today. if this microphone behaves. Oh, before some housekeeping, please silence or turn off your cell phones. Thank you so much. Uh, after Liz is done talking, we will have time for questions and discussion. Please give me a wave and I'll bring the mic around because we wanna get it all recorded on the podcast, especially your great questions at the end. All right, Liz Lenz. A contributing writer for the Columbia Journalism Review, hails from up the road in Cedar Rapids, and is the author of Godland, a story of faith, loss, and renewal in Middle America, which is fabulous, forthcoming in August. She has another book coming out called Belabored, A Vindication of the Rights of Pregnant Women, and that's out in spring. She has written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Pacific Standard, among many other print and online publications. And her essay, All the Angry Women, was included in the anthology you might have heard of called Not That Bad, which was edited by Roxane Gay and came out in 2019 this year? 18, 2018, yep. She earned her MFA in creative writing from Lesley University today. Liz will explore examples from writing and art that balance humor with heavier moments to create hilarious and heartrending work on the page. Please join me in welcoming Liz Lenz. Hello. Um, I hope nobody here ever studied art seriously because you're gonna get like so angry, you might like poop yourself. So I, <laughs> I don't know anything about art, but we're gonna talk about it. Um, so <laughs> that's just what we do here. Um, but one of my favorite stories uh, to tell about my family, and I'm gonna tell it to you and hopefully it sets the tone for what we're talking about is um, the story of my sister crushing her cat in a hide-a-bed. Um, I have, just quick uh, setting, I have seven brothers and sisters. I'm number two. And this particular uh, sister in question is two years older than me. Still very traumatized. I won't use her name. The summer I was 14, my older sister, Jessie, was 16. We found two small kittens on the side of the road. We lived in South Dakota, and Jessie and I had been coming back from visiting a friend on her farm when we saw the kittens in the ditch. Their mother had been hit by a car. We had been begging our mom for cats, but she had eight kids and a crumbling Victorian house to take care of, and she did not want cats. When we found the kittens, we convinced her we'd take good care of them, and we did. We used babysitting money for the vet bills, and they were so tiny, we bottle-fed them every couple of hours. We were exhausted, but it wasn't enough, and one morning, I woke up for my bottle-feeding shift, and the kittens were dead. I know. 
we buried them. And the next morning, we woke up to discover that the neighbor's dogs had dug them up and eaten their tiny corpses. Our backyard was strewn with dirt and fur, and we were devastated. As a 14-year-old, I wore black for eight weeks in mourning. That next Christmas, my parents gave Jesse and I two cats who were named Mona and Lisa. Thank you. That was me. Jesse's like, I did it. And I'm like, no, fuck you. It was me. Um, we still fight about it. Um, <laughs> we're adults. We'd proven we'd been responsible, that we could take care of them. And we were so happy. Five days later, I was sitting in the living room watching. Oh, by the way, this is the most ridiculous PowerPoint presentation that's ever been put together. It's crooked. It's a hot mess. Let's begin. Um, so I was sitting, so five days later, I was sitting in the living room watching Mrs. Winterborn, which is a highly underrated rom-com with Ricky Lake. Watch it. It was late. My younger siblings were in bed. Jessie was up in her room on the third floor, cleaning up from having a friend over, when suddenly I heard shrieking, just shrieking from upstairs. Being the good sister I am, I turned up the volume on Mrs. Winterborn, <laughs> and I didn't move. My dad came storming down the stairs and ran past me into the kitchen. Moments later, he rushed out carrying cleaning supplies and black trash bags. Dad, what happened, I asked. Your sister crushed a cat in the hide-a-bed. What? Would I joke about something like this, is what he said. Now, my dad is a corporate lawyer with this sick sense of humor. He would absolutely joke about something like this. And after it happened, he would continue to make jokes about this until my sister cried. In fact, he just made a joke about it two weeks ago when I called him to wish him happy birthday. But for now, in this moment, he was not joking. So I kept watching Mrs. Winterborn. A few minutes later, my father was again standing before me, holding a knotted up black trash bag. Get rid of it, he said. I took the bag. I could feel the dead weight of that cat, see the heavy outline of its small body. Now, I had learned four months prior that we shouldn't bury kittens in the ground. <laughs> Plus, it was winter in South Dakota. The earth was hard. I'm 14. I figured if I put the kitten in the trash, it would meet the same horrible fate. So I did what seemed normal. I put the body of the cat in a shoebox and put it up in my brother's treehouse. <laughs> planning to dispose of the body when I had a better plan. I was 14. I never had a better plan. <laughs> Spring arrived, <laughs> and, I <laughs> and I sat in my room doing my homework, which had a really great view of my brother's treehouse. I was working on algebra as I saw him go up the tree for it. It made me feel like I was forgetting something that I couldn't remember. Seconds later, I heard a scream, and I saw a shoebox go flying out of the treehouse into the backyard. I ran outside, and together we buried the body, making sure to add a lot of rocks on top to keep it safe. And that's the story I like to tell when people say, 
Talk about your family. What was it like to grow up in a big family? It's my favorite story. Because to me, it encapsulates the humor and the horror of our lives, the weirdness and the tragedy, the balance of light and dark. So let's talk about art. I, I'm a visual writer. I think in pictures. I, I see words on the page. And so I often conceptualize my writing as um, in colors, in images, and in moments. And um, way back in high school, when I took AP European history, <laughs> that was my peak. I never did anything smart after that. Um, but I remember learning about this art term called chiaroscuro. This is where if you studied art, you're going to like be, that's not how it's pronounced. But look, I don't care. We're here to talk about writing. And it's a, it's a technique that was developed during the Renaissance that balances light and dark on the page to create really vivid images. Um, it's, uh, it was developed during the Renaissance, taken up by the, the great masters da Vinci, um, Caravaggio, Rembrandt, and it basically just means light and dark. And um, one of the things I think about a lot is something that da Vinci wrote in one of his notebooks describing this kind of technique. He wrote, an object represent, represented in black and white will display stronger relief than in any other way. Hence, I would remind you, O oh, painter, in this situation, O oh, reader, to dress your figures in the lightest colors you can, since if you put them in dark colors, they will be in too slight relief and inconspicuous from a distance. And the reason is that the shadows of all objects are dark. And if you make a dress dark, there is little variety in the lights and shadows, while in light colors, there are many grades. In writing and in art, we need shadows. We need contrast. We need O writer to dress your figures in bright colors and set them into the darkest of shadows. What this means is that if you write about dark things, you need to add some light. If you write about light things, you need to add in the dark. And you need to do this for balance, for contrast, to keep your reader interested, to, take, to make your characters come alive. And I know these aren't showing very, very well, but um, this is The Virgin of the Rocks by Da Vinci. Um, and even though the colors are not showing up super well, um, you can just see the way the faces just glow, right? Glow from the page or from the screen. Ah, oh, my favorite. <laughs> this is, I'm not kidding. Ah, nervous laughter from the crowd. This is Caravaggio's Judas and the Head of Holofernes. Is that better? Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look at the way, like, I just love the way the face, the skin glows and the background is so dark. And I just, it's also kind of I mean, it's also funny, right? Like, if you think about it, you're like, okay, real chill, Caravaggio, real chill. Um, oh my gosh, you guys. This is Rembrandt's um, The Sea of Galilee. And I, we probably don't have time for this, but does anybody know, like, why this picture is so significant? This isn't like a pop quiz. It's lost. Yes, it's lost. It was stolen 
in the largest unsolved art heist from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And so, um, and it's never been found. And I'm just like obsessed with this case and it's Rembrandt's one of his only seascapes or, and, uh, and it was a triptych too, right? So there are three of them. But again, like look at the way the waves glow and then it just comes out from the page. The Sea of Galilee, yeah. No, I, I've been there. I have also been there. The Sea of Galilee, like you want to talk about contrasts? If you have ever been to the Sea of Galilee, which is actually called Lake Kinneret, right? Kinneret. Thank you. Um, is it actually just looks like a lake in Minnesota? <laughs> and I got there, and I was like. This is where the disciples lost their minds? <laughs> like, talk about the fragility of men. I just... But Rembrandt clearly was like, no, no, we got to justify it for these guys. So, oh, we're not here yet. Uh, okay, so hold on. Let's, let's, keep, let's stay back with Rembrandt. So uh, I always find it useful to like think, look at good visuals to come up with ideas for your writing. So, um, so let's talk about let's talk about the opposite of not having contrast, right? How many of you have read books so darkly horrible they just dragged? I yes, yeah, yeah. You're like, oh, your life cannot be this bad. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I once got kicked out of Shakespeare class because I was laughing so hard at King Lear. <laughs> I was like, no, this is not tragedy, this is comedy, which is, you know, that famous quote is like, comedy is just tragedy that happens to someone else. But I literally, I was laughing so hard, I was like choking, and the professor was just like, get out. Um, he didn't write me any recommendation letters. <laughs> so. So, and, and also, on the flip side, and we don't need to name names here, but how many of you have read books so bright and light and happy and positive that they were annoying as hell? Yeah, yeah. You need contrast in every aspect of writing. It, I mean, it doesn't matter. Fiction, poetry, and we'll talk about how to encapsulate or incorporate that, um, that practically on the page here. Um, in a minute, but those kinds of um, those kinds of writing, you know, they have their place. I'm not here to trash anybody's way of making money, but in a sense, <laughs> I mean, like, look, if you're gonna New York Times bestseller with like the power of positive thinking, get it. But also, I'm not reading that shit. <laughs> um, I don't like positivity. Um, you know, that kind of writing has its place, but look, it's hotel art. It's a Thomas Kincaid painting. Have you ever looked at Thomas Kincaid paintings? They have no shadows at all. And it's like, there's, I mean, there are like darker colors in sun, but how do you render an entire forest scene without an actual shadow? So, um, oh, I think I have another great example of hotel art. Oh my God, I love a good duck picture. It's my favorite. I'm looking at houses right now, and I love walking into people's homes and being like, there's your dog dragging your dead duck picture. I love it. Um, no offense if you have one. <clears throat> good stories, good stories are sick and wrong. 
Good stories are happy and sad. Good stories like good are, are vivid and they're horrifying. One of my favorite movies, Steel Magnolias, you know, I, I didn't put the picture up, but Dolly Parton's character says, laughter through tears, that's my favorite emotion. And that's the emotion of chiaroscuro on the page. So practically, what does this look like on the page? I am keeping track of time. Um, so what does it look like? Let me read you a little story from one of my favorite writers and friends, uh, Sam Irby. So what you need to know just as a setup is <clears throat> she's drunk in a car with some friends trying to go home in college. Uh, okay, Adam and I were the last ones out of the dorm. Adam hauled the luggage through the hushed, darkened hallways while John carried what was left of a Budweiser-fueled McDonald's run the week before, a crumpled bag filled with slimy old nuggets and cheeseburgers that he had reheated in the tiny communal kitchen on our floor and cleaned of bits of mold. The three of us slipped and fell across the parking lot toward one of two remaining cars while sideways winds blew snow directly into our faces. While John wedged his oversized frame horizontally into the back seat, I struggled to breathe under the weight of what I can only assume were suitcases full of mesh tank tops and Cubs jerseys in the front. Adam uneasily piloted his tiny car through the blizzard and out of the student lot. I shouldn't eat old McDonald's. An hour on the road, and we were still only 10 miles outside of campus. As holiday traffic inched imperceptibly along, John snored peacefully in the back seat, and I squinted at the radio dial and tried to pick up a signal from DeKalb's one decent radio station. Suddenly, I felt something strike a match in the pit of my stomach. I ignored it, continuing to search vainly for strains of that one Third Eye Blind song everybody knows by heart and hates. What I found instead was droning conservative talk radio, artificially cheerful Christmas carols, the play-by-play -play of some football game being held in the middle of a cornfield, and fuck, there it was again. Except this time it was slick, boiling oil churning through my large intestine at breakneck speed. I need a bathroom, I blurted at Adam, my armpits suddenly damp. I need a bathroom right now. Adam threw up his hands helpless inside his toy car, gesticulating wildly toward the stretch of motionless cars in the icy tundra before us. And I didn't know, bleeding like a teenage girl about how far the nearest exit was. I tried to distract myself from the reality that I was trapped in a metal box with two spray tanned pieces of beef jerky by returning my attention to the useless radio in front of me. An eerie calm washed over me and I felt another wave of molten lava break gently against my intestinal wall. I bolted upright. I'm going to shit in your car, I announced. <laughs> Surrendering to the inevitable, John awoke with a grunt, jumping out of the back seat as Adam desperately yanked the car out of traffic and onto the shoulder. I kicked out of my reasonably priced new Walmart winter boots. John snatched my door open. I threw the suitcase I was holding into a snowbank with one hand and held the empty cheeseburger bag out to me with the other. In here, he commanded. Okay, sure, bro. Leaning with my right side against the open car and my left arm wrapped around John's leg for balance, I squatted, hopeful and relieved. My eyes trained on the bead of sweat trickling slowly down Adam's temple. <laughs> I mean, there's more. Um, 
<laughs> if you haven't read this book, um, actually, they're out of it at Prairie Lights, I just asked, but um, you should. It's beautiful, it's funny, it will make you cry laughing. But, um, but I, I, one of the amazing things about Sam's writing, and we don't have time to like read so much about it, is that she sets you up for these intense moments of just ridiculous laughter. And then in the next, she's talking about like, you know, her personal humiliation, right? Which is something I think we can look. If you've never experienced personal humiliation, like, talk to me, I'll give you some ideas. Um, but, but it, you know, it's, it's these just like heartful moments of like the funny and the sad and the awkward and they're so beautiful. So when we think about it like rendering it on the page, now we have some practical tips. It's more than just jokes, folks. Okay. Make the, okay. Look at your writing. I assume you're all here because you have writing somewhere on the page. Find your favorite piece, go through with some highlighters, contrasting colors, probably. We're very practical right now. And look, mark the sad moments, mark the funny moments. What does the balance look like? And it doesn't have to be 50-50. If we think back to those paintings, some of them were all dark in just a little bit of light, right? You know, you don't, well, I'm not saying you need equal balance, but you need to think about the balance. You need to think about the contrast. You need to be examining where you're light and where you're dark. And you need to be doing that visually and practically so that you can get an idea of how the balance is working on the page. Um, and I'm sure while you're here, a lot of like really smart um, writers will talk to you about like sentence level, kind of like looking at how your sentences balance out and everything like that. I'm not here to do that, but it's, it's the facet of the same thing, looking at big picture, where are moments where you're quote unquote lighter, where it's funnier, where it's positive, and where do we have more negativity. Um, and also consider that people often laugh in darkness. I'm going to tell a quick story. Um, because when my ex-father-in-law was dying of cancer, we would have these family dinners where my in-laws and I would gather at this table and eat dinner while my father-in-law, just in the room above us, moaned and moaned, just moaned in pain. And we had three of these dinners before one time I was sitting, and we, w we wouldn't talk. It would just be silence. And on the third dinner, I was about to take a bite of sweet corn, and he just moaned so loudly, it sounded like an orgasm. <laughs> and I started laughing so hard. And then everybody was glaring at me, and I started to laugh so much more. And then all of a sudden, we were all crying because nothing was funny anymore, because a man was dying above us and we were still eating sweet corn. So remember, if there's sadness and horror in your stories, that it's human nature to laugh at the absurdity in these moments. So it's, re it's realism, too. All right, now that you're all bummed out, let's talk about the second one. Give your bad characters the good lines. 
This is like a really good way to add contrast and fairness and depth to your characters. The good characters should not have all the good lines. They should go to the bad characters. I once asked a writer, Daniela Kuiper, she passed away many years ago, but she wrote this amazing book called Change Me Into Zeus's Daughter. And she also came from a big traumatic family. And I asked her how she handled writing about all the horrible things her parents did and how she did it on the page. And she said, you have to give them the good lines. Because if you are the hero and you have all the good lines, there's no balance. So a really practical way to find some balance is to allow your bad characters, your bad people, to have moments of wisdom and insight. Um, da Vinci, going back to that dude who you may have heard of, he also wrote in his notebook about painting, the variety of colors in the shadow must be as great as that of the colors in the objects in that shadow. And I think about that often because I think too, it's too easy to just make a bad character bad or a bad person bad. I profile a lot of people in the media and often they're not super fun people. They're not, I'm not profiling them because, you know, they like love to help out orphans. Um, you know, and, and, but like, and I think the hardest part is to finding that depth in the shadows, the depth of colors in the shadows, which are always present. Shadows are never painted in black. Um, I'm sure afterwards a painter's gonna come up and be like, well, actually. Um, but look, I watched that one guy, Bob Ross, so I think I know something. So, okay. <coughs> <laughs> to my next point, um, all those dumb jokes you think, oh, uh, uh, the good question, I don't know. Uh, I <laughs> Look, when I said this was a bad PowerPoint, I wasn't kidding. Again, contrast, you thought I was joking, but I really wasn't. Uh, I think it was because I was trying to have spaces, and then it just made them all one, and then I didn't notice it. But thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yes. Thanks, Mom. That was, I paid her to say that. Um, so when we talk about, I, 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 for many years, for four years, I edited a literary magazine. And it was so hard to find people who would write funny things. And I think that's just because it's really hard to be funny on the page. Um, I think we think of writing as seriously. You should think of your writing seriously. You should take it seriously. But I once had an editor where I was um, profiling the CNN guy, Chris Saliza. And I kept making like dumb little comments. Like we were going through these edits and fact checks. And I kept like just writing little jokes in the like in the bubbles the note bubbles in google docs and my editor was like put those in and i think about this advice all the time that like as we write you know we think of like our people our characters as situations and um and make jokes or like oh wouldn't that be funny if you know put that in you can always edit it out, but I find like the, the wilder and dumber you can get in the first draft makes the last draft infinitely better. Because again, we're even if, oh gosh, even if you're writing like a crime novel where everyone dies, 
it's still funny. Like there's still funny, lighthearted moments. Like that's the beautiful thing about human nature is we will, in the zombie apocalypse, we're never gonna stop laughing. We're gonna be like, that zombie's face looks so silly. Dead. Um, or me, at least. So put those jokes in, you can edit them out. Um, and I think we rarely, ooh. yep, okay, I lost my notes. Oh, here it is. Close to the end, folks. Um, and there's another reason I think that we don't, it's harder to be funny on page. It's because when we have like darker experiences or write about darker things, we, you know, we, we examine it. Like think about if you've ever gone through a breakup, you know, you like lie in bed and you're like, why? God, why? You know, and, um, and you think about it and you examine it and you talk to your therapist about it. But if you go have like dinner with your friends and you laugh so hard, you pee your pants just a little bit. <laughs> like, look, if you've had babies, it's gonna happen. So, um, but you don't like, you don't go the next day and like think like, why was that funny? Let me like examine it and talk to my therapist and no journal about it. We just let funny experiences happen. But I think you should like examine them, put them on the page. Find a way to put that in there, even if it just feels silly, as an exercise in ridiculousness. Force those moments of light in. Because again, if you look back at those paintings, sometimes there's a really sharp contrast between dark and light, and that can be perfect too. Um, okay. And, all right, and then the last one is the contrast happens on a word-by-word -word level. All the examples I've given you are these, like, contrast of theme with moment or situation, and, but also the contrast happens and can happen. And um, I might be running out of time, but this book is brand new. Everybody should read it. It's very funny. Um, it's also really dark, it's also very heartfelt, um, but the contrast in this book happens on this like oops, beautiful sentence level where words contrast with one another in a way that, oh, I'm sorry, it's Mostly Dead Things by Kristen Arnett. So, um, so consider how lists work for you. So if you're gonna make like a list, of like things a person saw lying on a sidewalk. It's one thing to say a broken bottle, a cigarette, a baby toy, right? Like that contrast evokes an emotion because the baby toy's contrasting with the broken bottle and the cigarette. You know, same thing where, I didn't think of this one in advance, but you know, if it's like, uh, <laughs> It's like two baby toys and a condom, you know. <laughs> You're like, they clearly didn't learn their lesson, <laughs> right? Like that, but like that, but like you, like the humor of that, right, is right there, just in a three-word description. So find it on a word-by-word -word, uh, level. So, um, so how do the colors in your writing contrast with the action? Are people dressed brightly, but they're all crying? Are they all in funeral garb and peeing their pants with laughter over a fart? 
right? Like contrast the smells with colors, the sights with action. Think of a town in the middle of Nebraska that's all brown and smells like fish where everyone has thick foreheads and thin lips and always seems to talk in a whisper, right? Like there's a story there and that story is being coming out because of the contrast of thick foreheads, thin lips, talking in a whisper, all brown, smelling like fish, Nebraska. Nothing good comes from there. Um, I just wrote a book about the Midwest, so I can talk shit about it all I want. Um, <laughs> please don't punch me if you're from Nebraska. Um, so uh, one of my uh, favorite painters is, you know, I'm, I'm basic, so it's, it's uh, Hopper, Edward Hopper, right? And, uh, and I, I think about his, actually one time a marketing expert was talking to me about my personal brand. She was like, think of, your, think of your brand as a house on the intersection of streets, you know, and I was like, uh, okay, are those streets like dressing poorly and smelling bad in public? Um, but they, uh, but I, do, I do think the visual is worth thinking about because when I think about my writing, I like to think about it as opera house where there's weird light, like where is the light even coming from? I don't even know. I don't think he knows, right? But the, where are the shadows coming from? I don't know. Um, but like, but the, the way that the light and the dark contrast, you can get a whole feeling and a whole emotion just from the picture of a house, right? That this house looks, like it just feels like there's something more going on here and it's just because of the way things are contrasted. Thank you so much, Liz yes. Lenz. Thank you all for coming.